Hey everyone, Ed Helms here. You might know me as Andy from The Office or Stu from The Hangover, or you might know me as the co-founder of BGS. I know, I'm just as surprised as you. They let me co-found something. But here's the thing, we're doing it again. Yeah, this time we're leaping into our other deep love, the vast and vibrant world of country music with something we're calling Good Country. Now this isn't just another newsletter. Think of Good Country as a place. A place where you can explore, learn, and dig into all of what makes country good. Seriously, country music has so much going on these days, and it's coming from so many different deep and soulful places, and we're here to cover all of it. Just as we've done for Bluegrass and Roots Music at BGS for over a decade. So sign up now at goodcountrybgs.substack.com and let us bring you the many sides of country music straight to your inbox. Good country. It's a nice place to be. Hey, it's Cindy Howes from the podcast Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. Check out our very special 250th episode featuring an interview and performance with Basic Folk co-host Lizzie No. I feel like most women I know have an experience where They've been working and working and working to perform and to execute and to please everyone else. And then things sort of fall apart a little bit in some way or another. And partying can actually be a really important step towards getting free because it shows you where you need to fall apart and being on the dance floor, like in community with mm. other women and mm -hmm. in community with queer people. Mm -hmm. Like for me, those experiences have been so important. This time, Lizzie is on the other side of the mic talking about and performing songs from their brand new album, Half Seas. Basic Folk's 250th episode with Lizzie No is streaming now on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Join us there or wherever you get podcasts. Hello and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. I'm Cindy Howes and I host this darn podcast. Happy to have you here today. Hello. Thank you for listening. Before we get into Viv and Riley, let's talk about staying in touch. Best way to do so is to sign up for our newsletter at the link in the show notes. Or you can go to basicvoke.com, click on the red sign up for the newsletter button. There you go. You've done it. It's a once a month newsletter that lets you know what's going on with your favorite little folk pod. We also are on social media. And let me tell you, my friend, we are on Instagram, mostly Facebook and TikTok at Basic Folk Pod. You can find us there. You can follow us there. We're also a listener supported podcast. We just wrapped up our fall fundraiser. It is the winter time officially. It's weird. We start in the fall and we end in the winter. That's just a thing that happens. If you did not get a chance to contribute, you can do so now. Basicfolk.com slash donate. You can also go to the shop or the store. I can't remember what it's called on the website, but you can get a beanie there, a handmade beanie from my mom that has a little Basic Folks tag sewn on it. You can get that for $5 a month and support this fabulous little folk podcast that we all just love so much. Okay, let's get into this. Vivian Leva and Riley Calcagno, known as Viv and Riley, 
dive deep into the nuances of old-time music, folk influences, and the process behind their album, Imaginary People. The duo, who met at a music camp in Port Townsend, Washington, traced their roots from Riley's disciplined musical practices to Viv's intuitive approach. The two found inspiration from growing up in the Seattle area, listening to KEXP, that would be Riley, to living in Portland, Oregon, to their current home in Durham, North Carolina. Drawing on their experiences at fiddlers, conventions, and music camps, Viv and Riley reflect on the transformative power of collaboration and the vibrant community that has shaped their unique sound in their duo, as well as their other band, The Onlys. As they share insights into their songwriting process, the episode unravels the intricate layers of imaginary people delving into the harmonious blend of indie roots and experimental production that defines their latest release. With a nod to their eclectic influences, including the supportive atmosphere of Durham, North Carolina, the duo discuss the evolution of their sound under the guidance of producer Alex Bingham from His Golden Messenger, who produced their latest album. Okay, we are going to take a listen to a song from Imaginary People. This is Kiger's Hill, and then we'll get to our conversation with the wonderful Viv and Riley on Basic Folk. So we were just talking, uh, Viv and Riley are here. Hey, guys. Hey. Hi. Hey, guys. I love you so much. Good to see you. <laughs> so good to see you. Yes. Um, so, Riley, I just like cut you off, but I wanted you to say what you were saying on the record. Well, yeah. Here's for the public. Well, so I was just saying, Cindy took us in uh, in in Pittsburgh. We, we just got off this like three-month-long album release tour, and... Uh, <laughs> I, I Pittsburgh feel, was our first stop our very first stop and it was kind of a random place to to start as you know um and uh it was a Tuesday night in Pittsburgh end of summer you can see the yeah. see the scene um a hot day but anyway uh <laughs> it was just a lonesome gig and we it was but in a way but then y'all's presence there you and Hootie like made us feel so much better like and it was the start of our tour. It was our least well-attended show. But you guys were there, and um, we got through it all together. <laughs> and we enjoyed staying with you, you guys. So it, it made it all. It made the whole thing not sad and kept us going for the rest of the tour. Hell yeah. Oh, my gosh. That show was so good. And uh, I I remember like several times bringing it up afterwards and being like, these musicians who are pretty well known in their circle came and played in this town and like seven people were there and that's why I'm leaving. And that's generous. That's generous <laughs> that's because a- most of that those were employees. I would say it was about three 
not <laughs> but it was a great like first trial gig for us of the tour like we kind of got to trial our gear and and um and also y'all were kind to us so i just think there's that i think a special thing about our little scene is you you find friends along the way i mean maybe every scene's like this but you find friends along the way and they make the the mm. maybe people you've never met before but they make the like especially lonesome gigs less lonesome um, yeah because well, I'm glad to hear that it can it can get rough if if you're just alone in Pittsburgh. Uh, I was trying to formulate a like question a for you guys yeah. <laughs> when uh, I was reading about that your history and your first gig in Asheville, where there were like 15 people in a 200 person room, and I was like, kind of like that show in Pittsburgh, but I couldn't like come up with like a smart question. So I'm glad that we're we're addressing the elephant in the room. Yeah, it's not yeah. it's not really an elephant in the room, but. Yeah. So I love your record, Imaginary People, and I'm excited to talk to you both about the recording process, but a little bit of background on you two, if that's all right, to start at the, the beginning. Sure. You're both from musical backgrounds. So can you each set the scene for what music like for you growing up and how you think that made you the musician you are now? Yeah, I can do that. Um, so yeah, I grew up in Virginia, Lexington, Virginia, and both my parents are musicians. My, uh, they both sing and write songs, and my mom plays guitar, and my dad plays fiddle. And are they on a stuff. professional level? Yes, yeah. What they used to play professionally a lot. Um, they were in different well-known old-time bands, and then um, my mom, you know, used to sing with uh, like Hazel Dickens and Alice Gerard and. Um, uh, that oh, kind of uh, those folks and um, Jenny Hawker and um, then my parents were in a duo for for many years called Jones and Leva and they wrote songs um, and performed in that duo but they always had other careers going at the same time so they never did it full full time but um, you know they've played all They've they've done every time I tell them like where we're going and what we're doing they're like oh I've been we did that <laughs> um, yeah we know that venue um, so that's kind of cool and um, I just grew up like around a lot of music um, a lot of singing I learned a lot of you know they would teach me songs and uh, my dad would bring me on stage to guest perform with him and his bands starting from when I was like six or something and really they just brought me along to a lot of fiddlers conventions and um so I think I was around music a lot and around um a lot of people making music I was not as interested I think um like instrumentally as, as like I didn't I didn't pick up the fiddle or banjo but I was interested in singing and songwriting and eventually playing guitar to help me with that but you know lots of music not just old-time music uh listen to all sorts of music at, at our house yeah and I grew up in Seattle, so on the opposite coast. Um, uh, my dad was in the... My parents were music lovers. My dad is a musician. Um, he was in the, like the Seattle experimental music scene uh, in the 80s and 90s. Uh, and then... He's probably got stories. Jeez. Oh, yeah. I mean, your parents both probably have stories. Wow. Two different types of stories. My mom managed a mime theater in Seattle in the 80s. Um, yes, is, as one does. <laughs> that's the most Seattle in the 80s thing I can think of. Uh, uh, and 
anyway, so but then but then they found folk music uh, around, you know, a little bit before I was born. And my dad started playing mandolin and old time fiddle. And there's a scene of people, you know, they they make they made their way east or sorry, west. <laughs> Directions are so hard. Um, they made their way west. Um, and uh, at some point, uh, but spent a lot of time with old fiddlers and there's a there's a robust scene of those folks in seattle there was a square dance when i was growing up um Mm. and uh when i was when i was born we started going maybe a little bit before i was born they started going to fiddlers conventions and stuff around the area um and then around that that time i started asking for a fiddle uh, and they gave me a little toy fiddle so i started kind of hammering on that and i started taking violin lessons um I had a, a stress dream about playing the violin last night, but I won't bore you. How'd it go? Uh, it, no, no. Uh, it it didn't go great uh, for for my performance uh, in the dream. Mm-hmm. I like was really confident, and then as the performance approached, I started wondering if I could just play a fiddle tune. the The premise was I was supposed to play a piece of Bach, uh, but I mm. hadn't played Bach in like ten years. Um, Got it. So it was really stressful. I was trying to like cram the notes, like, you know, looking at the sheet music, trying to memorize it. That was failing. Uh, Then I just said I'd read it off the sheet music, but it didn't sound good. And then my bow broke. Um, (laughs) Mm. Why do our brains try to kill us? Yeah, Mm -hmm. it was rough. But I got through it just like I I did play classical music for a while, hence the dream. So I got through Mm. all that and... And now I'm back to just playing fiddle tunes. The two of you met at a music camp in Port Townsend, Washington, and it sounds like you were only overlapping at this two-week camp for a few days, but like, it sounds like also it was like immediately you hit it off. What was your initial connection like, and how do you still relate to that? Hmm, I feel like our initial connection was uh, we just – we I feel like we just immediately started having fun together. Mm-hmm. Um, and Riley was with his uh, other bandmates, Sammy and Leo. And um, so th- those three started with this band, The Onlys. Um, mm-hmm. And so I met them also at the same time that I met Riley. So it was kind of the four of us. I feel like we're just immediately started like running around the camp and playing music together and staying up late and singing songs. And um, from my perspective, at least, I I didn't really have um, the same experience that they had growing up, which was like that they were all the same age and they were all into the same kind of music and were all like at similar like musical levels so that they could play together. Um, and I, I didn't have that growing up like with people my own age. So it just was really exciting for me to meet like three other people that were you know, only months apart from me in age and like had very similar knowledge, like musical knowledge and um, Hmm. tastes and but also we're just like really fun to hang out with. So it just we all clicked very quickly, I think. What were the other ages of the attendees of the camp? (laughs) Well, that was, um, you know, there's I laughed because I was thinking it was all old folks, but that was voice works. uh, And there's a good young crew. but it wasn't people exactly our age. It's folks younger than us or like a little bit older than us. So that was a special thing is like our band. You guys like 18 we, when you met? Yeah, we were 18. We had all just yeah. graduated high school like that month. And 
we I remember watching Viv and her mom sing uh, with Laurel Bliss in the Wheeler Theater there in Port Townsend. And it was just such beautiful singing. Um, I'd become a fan of her mom's music, uh, like she was talking about um, in the years right before that. And it was kind of it was really special to just hear their voices like resonate. I just remember being str- stricken by that. Um, mm. And then I just remember the, 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 the sound that when we first jammed with Sammy and Leo, who are my old friends and bandmates. Um, it was just be- like, and Nundy, Nundy Forest was there, our, our dear old friend. Um, and I just remember that being like a really special sound and being really taken with like the, the, the sound that we all made together. Uh, cool. This is a, maybe, maybe the answer to this is no, but were there any differences in your musicality based on being from two different sides of the country? Hmm. What do you think? Well, you grew up in a really like Viv grew up in a really robust. I think of a really robust singing tradition. Like her parents went to go visit ballad singers, and they could all sing like three part harmonies and find the different parts all, mm-hmm. all in on on command, you know. Um, and I came from this like really, really kind of vibrant fiddle world um, with the like the West Coast fiddle scene. Um, and grew up going to fiddle camps. And so I think we had slightly different perspectives on old time music in that way. I I was trying to sing and I sang some in the onlys, but it wasn't what felt natural. And I didn't know how to like find a harmony part very well. Um, and so that was something that we kind of like had to figure out. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting working stuff up at the beginning. Uh, yeah, I feel like I, I was I was more interested in singing than, like I said, like, I didn't know. I didn't play fiddle. Everybody else all played fiddle. Um, and then there was just different repertoire. Like, I feel like it took me years to uh, really, like, get to know all of their, the West Coast fiddle tunes and, like, what chords <laughs> mm. go with them because... It's a um, vibe. It's a vibe. It's, di- like, they're great, great tunes that people play out there. But, it, you know, I my dad plays, like, Tommy Gerald Round Peak tunes and uh, yeah. like North Carolina tunes and Kentucky tunes. So it just was, um, yeah, so just different material. And but that was exciting. Mm. Like, you know, oh, we both play old time music, but I don't know any of these tunes and they sound mm-hmm. pretty and interesting. So, uh, yeah. But then the thing that really drew, drew us together was that we were not only interested in the old time music that we were jamming on, but we had this sort of uh, side interest in writing songs and um, arranging them, and um... and even I feel like we were all kind of willing to, we're we were willing to kind of cross over, uh, like we all were really comfortable and familiar with like old time music, but then we would do country songs, and you know Nundy, who we were saying played with us, he's like a great country singer, so like he'd bring in. Yeah, bring in country and honky tonk music. And then also, uh, like, Riley and I both, when we were teenagers, like, wrote pop songs. And so we are down to, like, do original music that is kind of in neither of those worlds. And, uh, you know, so we weren't, like, yeah, we we were willing to, like, try different things at different times. Mm. Man, okay. I'm also trying to, like, um, figure out exactly when you all were like becoming te- like teenagers from 12 to, you know, 12 to 20. 
was it like you were born in the late 90s? Yeah, yeah we were born in 98. So, okay, so like your teen years would have been like the early 10s. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I or we like graduated in 2016. We graduated high school in 2016. Yeah. Okay. What do you right. think we were listening okay. to? Well, okay, so it's weird because when you were in high school, Spotify was like a big thing. And I and I actually would love to hear more about how you consumed popular music because I don't think I've ever had the opportunity to like dig into this with people your age, you know, yeah. like in in when for a certain um, for people of a certain age, it was like the radio. And then it was like, oh, I had my somebody made me mixtapes. And mm-hmm. then, you know, my generation had CDs and we had CD players in our car and then Napster at the turn of the century. And then iTunes became mm-hmm. a thing. And then it feels like the next big thing was Spotify and streaming. Mm-hmm. And people talk about how streaming is is bad for art and bad for musicians. And I agree wholeheartedly. But the other side of that coin is that you have access to like whatever you want. And I just cannot imagine being a teenager in high school <laughs> and being like, I can listen to anything I want. My friend used to live like across the street from the mall, which was close to the record store. And I'm like, wow, you can get music anytime <laughs> you want. <laughs> I, well, I feel like we're maybe a tiny bit before uh, older than the people you really need to talk to about that phenomenon because I my formative musical like when I was getting into music of my own music, um, you know, my own iPod. It was an iPod and it was iTunes, and I remember drive like buying Arcade Fire like so, albums off iTunes and. But which one were you buying? Suburbs. You weren't buying the funeral. This you buying the suburbs. Yeah. Okay. So the suburbs was like two albums after the funeral. And okay, I feel it's like just interesting sub- to, to. I never to got into this. that album. Like I spent like you know twelve ninety nine on it, but I never got into on the it. suburbs. Yeah. Um, I never got into it. Don't but- sleep on Neon Bible. Except <laughs> although Arcade Fire, people don't listen to that band anymore. Mm. Yeah. I never did. I I had I had the access to it. Um, <laughs> I I burned it in protest. See, you're I, ahead of your I, time, Riley. Um, I, I feel like my music consumption was very fra- like fragmented. Like it would be, yeah, like a lot of iTunes, and I would get like an iTunes gift card for Christmas, and then. Mm-hmm. But I I personally like never committed to like a whole album like i'd be like i have to like disperse this money so i'd buy like one song from like oh a bunch of albums and then just like have it on shuffle all the time which i just don't think is a like was a great move it was either that or i would like i did burn cds still and then i i used pandora was my streaming service Mm, viv we're kind of haunted though still by that era because viv in that in her mp3 download like one song at a time day somehow um downloaded steve miller's uh (laughs) band song abracadabra um which is if you think about it it's a b so it's the start of the alphabet it comes on every single time i we get in the car so it's like and plug in uh, my phone for music it's steve miller abracadabra so it's pretty terrible mine is bob (laughs) seger against the wind nice Nice. You think it's nice. Oh, I believe it sucks. <laughs> it's not nice. It's kind of nice, but then you're like, okay. But I do feel like yeah, I'm a bit broke. It's haunting. Like, I do still kind of 
feel like I have a bit like of um, old man Spotify energy. Like I can't figure out how to use it very well. Like I, I'm not good at making playlists. And I don't know if it's just sort of like that, <laughs> that I was um, that I was like too far in my dad's iTunes library. iTunes library, like I wasn't weaned soon enough, soon enough from my dad's iTunes library, or if it's mm. like I'm just a little bit past the moment. Or I don't feel like I use Spotify very savvily. So okay, I apologize that we're not no, exactly cool. the people I you feel- need to talk to. No, I was just talking to Nina DeVitri, who maybe is like a couple years older than than you guys, and she was talking about having like access to her parents' iTunes library, so it all tracks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, to go talk the parents' to iTunes library is where it's at. That's it's really... even all all yeah. roads lead to Riley's dad's iTunes library for us oh, yeah. these days. <laughs> in in middle I guess school, I, I have to go talk to like Nora Brown. <laughs> That's yeah, you need to talk to Nora Brown. Yeah. To figure this out. Okay. Great. <laughs> Nora Brown, if you're listening, I'm coming for you. <laughs> the album Imaginary People has an openness to experimentation that I want to talk about a little bit later, but I want to get to how you got to this openness together. I think Viv said... We're both so open to other kinds of music and we have very similar taste and aesthetics. Where does that open-mindedness come from for each of you? Hmm. I think, uh, well, I'd be curious to hear what you say, Viv, but for me, I mean, it's kind of connects to what we were talking about, like growing up in Seattle in the early 2010s. Like I was just, um, I was downloading, you know, there's this radio station KXP and they had the free song of the day where you could download one MP3 of, the, of a day and it would it'd be whatever you just, whatever it was like, that's what you'd get. And, um, I remember like, you know, that just opened me up to a lot of different kinds of music, I think. Um, which is kind of cool actually. No, I haven't thought that about radio that. station is so good. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's still going, um, mm-hmm. no more free songs cause every song is free now, but, um, uh, but that is kind of a cool way to do it. It's like, well, I, if I can only have one song and someone else decides, like, she makes you love it. Um, uh, I remember I got one Head in the Heart song on my, from a free song, and I listened to it every day on the middle school school bus. Um, but Cute. yeah, I think that uh, uh, I think that was part of it. It's just like growing up, I had I, my my dad was blaring old scratchy fiddle music in the next room, but I was listening to like some like Seattle hip hop. Um, or like whatever they were giving me for free. Um, <laughs> uh, and then I was practicing classical violin. So it was this odd mix that I think kept me on my toes a little bit. What about for you, Viv? Um, for me, I feel like I, I feel like I kind of have to be, um, I have to be open, like open to I- different ideas when we're thinking about like, you know, producing a song or um, working something up just because like, I don't know, I, I feel like growing up, I I was encouraged to just to make whatever music felt like real or like was coming from a real place and to like not mm-hmm. worry about um, labels for it and I 
just for yeah I I feel like when I sit down to write music um it's just kind of like what something different will come out every time and it's not um purposeful but I think it just is it it's influenced by different things kind of unintentionally and um just yeah a song will just be what a song is and um it might require different things or might be inspired by different genres but it's not like I just have always tried to not be like you have to write this in this style of music like you have to write Mm. a and sometimes it might be like today I wrote an old a song that sounds old time or today I wrote a song that sounds country but um yeah it's just like whatever music feels right is like the music I want to (laughs) make yeah well that brings me to my next question about you have a very intuitive approach and listening to your answer it it just sort of um uh solidifies that maybe your open-mindedness comes from your intuition um so your approach is more intuitive while riley's education was more formalized like riley can read music um and that sounds like a really good balance However, um, do you feel like those attributes are ever detrimental to your partnership? I mean, I feel like we've just kind of had to figure out how to be ourselves in the collaboration. Like, and the good thing is that, like, while we do have, we did have different training or kind of upbringing in music. Like, I think more than most people, like we're, we're, we're pretty close to each other compared to like all the people in the world, like, uh, <laughs> in terms of our approach. Um, and plus I'm, you know, I never want to see a page of sheet music again. So I'm not, uh, I'm not wed to that, uh, in any, in any way. Um, what, would, what do you think, Viv? I don't, know. I don't know. I think we, yeah, I feel like we don't have, um, there's not that much, you know, there's not that much we like go head to head on or anything um mm. i feel like we we both uh make music similarly i mean riley has more discipline than i do i'll say that um which is like not a bad thing and is something that i probably resist a little bit but um can benefit from sometimes uh riley's you know he as someone who played classical music and went to conservatory for several years in college like he knows how to practice something um whereas i think i lean more towards you just sing it it'll be you you can do it but that's a difference (laughs) but it's (laughs) that's a difference in what we can do i feel like like because viv is so consistent with like like i'm i'm more of i'm more on the struggle bus in terms of like i have to practice and work on things and like learn my harmony parts and practice them and Viv has this natural ease about her musicianship. Intuitive, I think, is the right word. It's like very intuitive, very natural. Um, and I think that gives a lot of life to our collaboration um, because hmm. I'm someone who forces it. And sometimes it's good to force it. Sometimes it's good to grit it out. Um, and um, I think we we benefit from that approach. But I think a lot of the heart of our duo comes from not forcing it uh, and letting it kind hmm. of flow out, which is really Viv's strength. The new record, Imaginary People, was produced by Alex Bingham of His Golden Messenger and recorded in the Durham area with Durham Pals. 
You guys also live in Durham. We do live in Durham. Yeah. Yes. It's so nice. Riley said you live there because Viv put her finger on the map. <laughs> um, it was very random to begin with. We had really never been to Durham except for like six hours that we spent the night one time and then didn't see anything except for our friend's guest room. Um but a classic uh, touring musician thing where you only know the guest room in a, <laughs> in a house. Uh, but yeah, we really didn't know Durham, but um, had friends that lived there and were drawn to it. Uh, just the idea of trying it out. And then we just lucked out and happened to get asked to house it for six months for free or like for a yeah, house it, have a have a place to live for six months for free, which was a great trial period so we that's awesome packed up from portland oregon and moved to durham and then can you find that situation for me in portland maine (laughs) (laughs) do my best we're pretty good at finding places to stay in portland maine uh so okay great (laughs) i'll let you know (laughs) um like we mentioned earlier there was some cool experimentation uh and new sounds on the album but there also were new friends being featured on the songs and you two connected over music when you first met. Can you talk about what it's like to have music as a way to connect with new musicians who then become collaborators and then become friends? It's such a good accelerator. Um, Like we became aware of Alex um, through our uh, Viv's kind of like kind of brother, uh, not actual brother, but, um, Sam Freibush, who also plays in his school messenger and my old friend too, from before we both knew Sam before we knew each other. Um, and, um, Sam connected with, with Alex and we had a phone call and immediately hit it off. Just kind of talking about the songs, but that's the, it's not to our credit. It's the kind of person that Alex, Al is, um, he just is like a connector and a, uh, and just a, a very thoughtful person. And, um, I think that like working on the songs was like, it's like the best escape room ever. It's like, uh, uh, it's like you got to figure out <laughs> y- your way to get, uh, it's just a one, it's a bonding experience. It's like if young professionals in uh, Raleigh could all be in uh, recording uh, projects with each other, they would be less axe throwing places and more recording studios. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean, Um, though? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I feel like there was, you know, when we first met up with Al, like Riley said, we hadn't met him. And I I was personally a little nervous just how it was going to go, because especially I think especially for us, like coming from we are like so even though we're doing different things, we are so rooted in traditional music. And I think like really wanted to be. Under, like understood in that way like as that that was something that mattered to us and like was going to be part of how we make music and make an album uh even if it's not an old time record and just the more we hung out with Alex and like talked about the music like when you when you can see that you share like that you share a similar musical perspective or you have like similar taste or ideas of like what you want to do. And those are aligning. That's really exciting. And like, for me, like a way to bond really closely with someone Mm -hmm. Um, just being like, I not only really like this person, but I can trust their perspective 
and like that that allows you to be vulnerable and try new things because you believe that like ultimately you have the same goal Mm -hmm. that's so great one of the the first time we got we got together with al one time before we started making the record um and we stopped by the, the studio and we were touring with this song that's on the record. It's the last track. It's called Blackest Crow. And it's an old song from the Ozarks um, that I know from this great. I know my dad taught it to me, but it, uh, he learned it from a great duo named Kim and Jim Lansford. Um, and it's a song we've been doing live uh, for like as long as we've been playing, almost as long as we've been playing as a duo. Um and it feels like an important song to me, but we've tried to record it a couple times. And the way we were doing it in our live shows was not transferring, translating um, in recorded form. And um, and I think the other so what I'm getting at is like the other element of finding a collaborator is not someone who, just that you trust, but someone that you trust when they bring a new idea that kind of disrupts your process that you you trust it might be a good a good one. Um because Al, we started singing Blackest Crow and he started like fiddling with this box I had never seen before, um, like an MPC, which is like a sampling tool. And and he had this little thing on his sampling tool that was just this like repetitive loop that really went with the banjo and like the things that were were already in our version. And we slowed it down and like really changed it. And it was, it was in the, like the first 25 minutes of collaboration. And so... I think that was like the moment when I was like, oh, this is going to be really cool. This is going to push us, but in a way that I think is, I think is uh, really special. Cool. Okay. Let's talk about this experimental sound. That's a good segue. And this is all thanks to Facebook, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Thank you, Mark. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg. You can have my- Mark Z? Mark Z. So Facebook is where you bought an electric guitar (laughs) and a drum set. And started writing stuff in the basement. Yeah, um, you're talking. We're yeah. coming. That's where we're coming to you right now, right by the drum set. Oh, in our basement. live from the basement. <laughs> <laughs> what brought on this fun and unusual activity, and how did you each feel about stretching out your sounds in the early stages of these sessions? I don't know why I was like just, you know, I just you just get a craving for something new in your life. Um, I have a theory. Soft serve. Sometimes you like soft serve. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have a theory. I don't know if this is true, but we kind of started doing this during COVID, especially. Mm-hmm. And I feel like in Portland and in Durham, like, or in like throughout most of our summers, like most of our musical life is kind of taken over by fiddlers' conventions and festivals mm-hmm. and like old time like big community gatherings where you're seeing all your friends and like old time music is very uh, communal and uh, as, as you know, and community oriented. And I feel like with that not happening during COVID, I just think we were interested in, we just kind of were drawn to other kinds of music um, listening and making it. I just feel like we didn't really do that much old time music during the pandemic. Um, And then we're, just like playing around with stuff that was fun to do just the two of us and like, in you know, interesting and um, yeah, just something new to mess around with. That was like a little more chill. Like <laughs> you didn't have to like rip a fiddle. You could just like, you know, Riley could just pluck an electric guitar or um, yeah, 
I guess playing drums isn't that chill. <laughs> and I guess our roommate uh, and uh, or my roommate in Ohio, um, great songwriter named yeah. Sam Bailey uh, under the name Preacher and Daisy. He had a drum set now that I'm recalling it. And, and he also had an electric guitar. And a lot of my early pandemic time was making this solo EP uh, for actually a college class um, with the electric guitar and, um, keyboards and stuff. So I think I had been wanting to have an electric guitar, but you know, we were moving and it was just, I don't know, things were weird. And then got to Durham and was like, wow, we can be creative again. And there's a robust Facebook marketplace scene in Cary, um, which is, uh, a town, uh, South of Durham. Uh, uh, but it's, it's interesting how little I think it takes to inspire songwriting. Like I I've talked about this in the past, like when people have asked me about like how I write songs and um, like often it's very small things like that will bring a song out. Like if I've learned a new chord, like then that might be enough to like have a whole new song out of it because it's a new, interesting sound. And yeah, I just feel like you, you weren't even playing the electric guitar like differently than how you like play acoustic guitar, but just having slightly different, like, a different sound coming out while you're doing the same thing on a different instrument, I feel like just um, results in, uh, yeah, just new, like it just inspired, even if I don't even think the songwriting was that different. No. Um, but it just was like something different that was interesting enough to like spur new songs. Hmm. Okay. I have two more questions about experimentation and I wonder, no, I think they should be their own questions. I want to know how your roots still came through in these experimental sessions. Like, was it easy to stray away from trad and old time or did it like continue to just like bubble up, <laughs> maybe even get in the way a little bit? A lot of the songs that were like, that were, I think referring to really seemed to come out like all in one piece uh, or mostly like if I'm thinking about like the general and, um, and I think that's a testament to like the power of the <laughs> it's giving me such a skeptical look right now. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, I think that's a power like what you're saying is like it's a potent tool when you can change something up. Um, what do you think? But what do you think to the question? <laughs> Am I... The wait, it's about old time and in old time music. So right in the way. Well, that's what I was getting. That was that. <laughs> I thought I, I. Thank you for reminding me where I was going. Um, I feel like uh, I feel like it didn't get in the way because it was it was acting on its own. But I don't think you can separate yourself completely from your influences. Like there's something about the storytelling. I think in your song Kiger's Hill, it's it's a ballad about going home. Like it's not, it's not. It sounds really different. It sounds like a surf, like a surf rock song in a way, but like it's uh, it's a ballad about going to your home place, your old home place in Virginia. And I think you approach the storytelling not unlike the details that would be in a traditional song. Mm-hmm. Um, does that resonate? Yeah, to you? yeah, definitely. I don't, I don't feel. Um, I think that there were moments that like. I would just notice that like mm. Al would Al would think it was funny 
maybe how we would like approach something just because mm-hmm. he would be like that's your background like that's you guys are so funny like there's that, that yodeling or like yeah. that we would like we would <laughs> want to like be really close together to like record like we wouldn't want to be isolated uh you know we mm-hmm. would like want to be able to buzz off each other vocally or um you know I have like a I have like a boom chuck rhythm thing that like probably I think there were moments there were some songs like we didn't have that mm-hmm. like rhythm on it that I play on most right. um, most of our songs or but it, it didn't get in the way. It just was having to like come at it from a different direction, like what Riley said for the Blackest mm-hmm. Crow, like, OK, we know how we would just like do this song automatically if we were doing, you know, what we know um, and what feels comfortable. But like, how can we approach everything with like a slightly with something different like what what might be the main instrument besides banjo or mm-hmm. like how can we make this all feel cohesive um but blend it all together um but like mm-hmm. we brought it all we we you know did a fiddle tune on the record like we weren't trying to like not touch traditional music um yeah yeah but we just didn't want everything to go into that category um or like to we didn't want it to limit us and i don't think that it did it kind of reminds me viv of um uh, we've been listening to this uh, Iranian uh, psych rock musician um, from uh, from years past. Um, and it's funny because I put it on and I was playing it for my dad. And he was <laughs> the first thing he said was like, that's not that's not psych rock. Um, it sounds like Iran like I don't know Iranian music, but it sounds like uh, like Iranian traditional music to me like how i would think about it and but he thinks Mm. like he's like pushing his boundaries drastically forward and i feel like it creates this really interesting mix where it's like uh it sounds like iranian like uh it psych rock (laughs) i don't know it's probably the similar thing with our record like you know uh, riley's still like you play you still play the instruments you play right. in the style that you like learned it in. So like you're still going to hear a country fiddle part on like the title track, um, mm-hmm. you know, even if there's other production mm-hmm. things like that core is still on it. But you can't you can't escape your roots. You know, you can't outrun who you are. Um, right. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> a message to you all listening. Uh, Riley, you said, I think we were trying to make music that felt right to us. We wanted to follow each song where it wanted to go. So let's get a little bit more heady here because we were already there. How did you know when the songs felt right? And when did you know to stop stretching with a song? We were we were just on the um, on a little tour with a band called Blind Pilot. Um, great folks. Um, and they're about oh, to, so good. to go into the studio um, to make a new record um, for the first time in a while. And one thing they were saying uh, is that, um, they tried to limit their time, uh, uh, that they didn't have, that they didn't want to give themselves so much time that they could overthink stuff. And for them, you know, they're a really successful band, like, and they also came, came up in a time when like, there was a lot more money in the music scene, in my estimation, in those, those lucrative iTunes days. Um, (laughs) but I think, you know, they've probably spent like months working on records before and this time they're doing it in two weeks. And, and they said they did that to, uh, like I said, like 
to not overthink things. And we uh, don't live in the lucrative iTunes days. Um, and so we just only had so much money. <laughs> and so I feel like we didn't like tr- try and retry things. Yeah. Like, um, and, well, we actually recorded for the longest period of time that we ever had, yeah. which was n- nine days. Right. Yeah. Like, I think that included mm. practice, like two rehearsal days or something. Mm-hmm. I think it was like seven days of recording and two days of rehearsals. And pretty like, fast. for us, like, we were like, oh, we're really giving ourselves time. But it at nine days is still a really not that much time to get a full record done, um, especially mm-hmm. when you're like working with people you haven't worked with before and they're like learning your songs. So I do think that we actually do well with like a time constraint and that it's not something that we're like adding to over months and months because I think you can really lose perspective. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of has to be like whatever you can naturally make in a week's time, basically. Um, and yeah, so that that parameter definitely helped. And then I think Al would, you know, push us in by he, – he would – he had a lot of ideas and we would – I think we would try most of them um, if it was like a new part or like a certain way of playing um, in like playing something like that we wouldn't normally do. And I think we would try it, but I think we had pretty good instincts. Um, if it was like really interesting and still felt true to us, we kept it. And if it some, if it just felt like that's not our, you know, that's not our aesthetic or that's not like how we um, make music, then we would not keep it. I think we had a pretty good flow with, with like what, how much to try new things and how much when we, when we knew to just like edit and say, no, this is good Mm. just as it is. Viv on creating the record, you say I unlocked something. I think I let go of some fears in the process of making this record how cool. That's great. How have you seen that reverberating out into your life? Mm, that's such a good question. Um, I think I'm still trying to learn from it because it's easy to uh, forget <laughs> as, you, as you continue on doing other things. But um, I think like at the beginning of that project, it was really like, scary for me to think about um working like with someone totally new in a different genre and we like kept talking about it but then I would be like oh well maybe we should just go where we went the last record like that went well and we love Mm -hmm. Joel who made that record he's great um but I you know what we we decided ultimately like that we just need to try something new and it could mm-hmm. go well or it could not go well. And I think I am mm-hmm. trying to bring that with me with other things of like when to do what's comfortable and what you already know and when mm. um, you just need to like, yeah, let stuff go and not like worry what other people are going to think or if it's going to turn out perfectly because then you then you end up with something probably more interesting and you're not just trying to like recreate what you've already done. You're trying to like see what will happen by doing something new. Um, so I, yeah, I'm trying to like bring that piece of un- uncertainty um, yeah. with me. 
Cool. I and I'm also wondering since you are such um an intuitive player and uh I've sort of like glommed on to this uh intuition thing, like how that has has um played into this into this new phase of your life where you've let go of some of the fear, but you have such good intuition. So it's strange to think that you were like, I don't know if we should do this. Like your intuition was wrong or maybe it was fear that was taking over. Mm-hmm. But I don't know how that's how that's hitting with you. Yeah. About following intuition and not being afraid. Totally. I think it's like really some very important and something that, you know, even like being on tour the past three months, like playing shows, I'm like really want to keep with me because um even like playing these songs live, I was like kind of scared <laughs> um how people would like them or like I don't know whether people who liked our old stuff would like these songs or if they're translating. And um, I don't know. Yeah, I'm really trying to be better at just being like, well, do I like what I'm doing? Does this feel good mm. for me? And like, that's what yeah. really what matters. And if I can like believe in and, you know, value what I'm doing, then it actually it doesn't like the other stuff doesn't matter. And probably people will, you know, be enjoy it more like if I am enjoying Mm -hmm. what I'm doing um yeah do you guys ever think about the fact that like making this record the way that you did is not only good for your own musicality and your own humanity but it's also good for traditional music I think one thing that's been gratifying about making the record is being sort of surprised about who reaches out and likes it uh, and a lot of, you know, we we did have this sort of complex. Um, I don't think we were giving traditional music enough credit, probably, you know, and traditional musicians enough credit because a lot of people who have texted me, uh, like who really are resonating with the record, the new record is are like old fiddler, you know, like old fiddlers and, uh, you know, our favorite old time musicians and people who, mm. and so I think that like, I don't know if I could say that we're doing something good for tradition, but I, I think it's illuminated to me that our definition of what people are willing to go to or enjoy is not always what you're already doing. Um, sometimes you can lead people in another direction that they'll like. Um, and I think that's sort of our job as musicians. It's not like it. I think that it's so it can be a lot easier to be a musician who does the thing that's expected of you, you know, makes the album that is going to be easy to market and expect will be like, (laughs) yeah, the the, the album that's like your last record or like that, that did well, it's so much easier to make that kind of Mm -hmm. record. Um, But I think part of our responsibility is to do what we are, what we want and to, to show people that um, and maybe they'll like it. Or maybe, you know, it'll be like Arcade Fire Suburbs and they'll buy it off iTunes and never listen to it. Um, maybe. And that's fine. Like, not everyone has to like everything. And Totally. And, yeah, it's funny when, yeah, if someone's like, well, I liked your last record better. Well, that's totally. Oh, musicians love and that. It's, but it's fine. Then they can listen to that <laughs> record. And it doesn't mean that, you know, I, I think there's kind of too much pressure in some ways Uh and like to like make like that this record your next record is like gonna be your 
I don't know, like the best one yet or something like that. But yeah, I think that I think that every project should be allowed to be different if that's what the art, you know, the musician wants to do and to like do whatever they're interested in um, at that time. And it's okay if like different people like different eras of their work, but I, I think it shouldn't like limit people for like what they want to be hmm. making. It's, it's like what we were saying in like 2000 words, what jo- Joni Mitchell said in that great preamble of the circle game uh, live version uh, where she said like, no one tells Van Gogh to, to paint a starry night again, man. Um, and I love that. It's like, you don't want <laughs> an artist to paint the exact same painting. Cause that would be a replica. And um, I don't think we're like great artists or something, but I do think it's it's interesting to like push it forward and everything that you put out is just an offering. It's like you don't have to take up mm. just because someone offers something. It doesn't mean you have to take it or even care about it. A theme on the album is growing up, bittersweet nostalgia. How are you each feeling about growing older? <laughs> um. I'm feeling good about it. I feel like this year has been a lot of big growth <laughs> um, for me. And just I feel like I've learned I'm learning a lot. I am learning about how to. um, Yeah, just like how to live, how to live my life as an adult and try and make this career. And um, but, you know, it's been it's been a long transition, I think, between like college and through all the you know just complicated stuff and um I think yeah your early early 20s is a definitely a transition period um and just oh I, I personally feel like always being in between like you know uh, having an established life I'm doing I'm traveling I'm meeting people I am in some ways an adult but then also feeling like I have, you know, no idea what I'm doing and still like really, really like valuing like my parents' perspectives and like guidance of how to do things. And um, so I think like all those years of early 20s is like you're just being in between two, you know, multiple worlds and like different eras of your life, like your future self and your past self. And um, Mm. yeah. But now, almost at the end of 25, I think I'm like, yeah, you're just growing, growing every, every day. (laughs) I've been joking with friends lately because they say that like your brain finally like fully forms its frontal cortex. The cerebral. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm I'm sure I'm (laughs) frontal lobe. The frontal lobe. That's right. That's what I'm looking for. Anyway, I feel like I'm feeling that a little bit. It's like the, it's not not the edible is hitting, but like the frontal lobe is hitting a bit. Uh, <laughs> uh, and that feels kind of exciting. And it's also it's there's there's a sadness to it, too, to me, because it's like because I feel like there's something really fun about your frontal lobe having not hit, having not <laughs> dropped yet. Um, it's like, you know, you're just doing stupid things and like, you know, getting on your bike and riding around without a helmet and I don't know, just doing things that your fully formed frontal lobe will not, will not approve of. Um, and uh, I missed that a little bit, but 
maybe maybe I'm giving myself. I think I'm probably giving myself too much credit now for that I'm sure. <laughs> for sure. I'm like bragging about how I'm like have a. That's such a weird brag. Like, man, my frontal lobe is so formed. So you don't even know if it's formed yet. Yeah, I don't know. Should I get a brain scan just to make sure? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if they can tell that. Okay. We'll have to ask Hootie. Okay, yeah. Ask Hootie for us. All right, Viv and Riley, before I let you go, we're going to do a very special edition of the lightning round. This game is called Which One? The answers, there's two answers, or there's a possibility of a third answer, but there's really two answers. It's either Viv or Riley, <laughs> and like you're allowed it. to say your own name. I'm going to count you down, three, two, one, and then... You say the answer. Okay, do we both say it? Okay. We both say our answer? You both okay, say good. the answer, yes. Right. Okay, here we go. Lightning round, which one? Which one is the travel agent? Riley. Three, <laughs> two, one. You've already ruined the, the game. <laughs> the, okay, wait. You gotta give right. Viv. I'm okay, so I sorry. Agree. I forgot about the three, two, one. Because my frontal lobe is too formed. Okay. No, that's unformed. Right. <laughs> oh, my God. All right, well, listen. Which one is the travel agent? Three, two, one. Riley. Riley. Okay. Which one is the cook? Three, two, one. Okay. But like, I'm trying. <laughs> okay. Riley Sue chefs it up. Sounds good. Oh, wonderful. Which one is the one that picks the movie? Three, two, one. Neither. <laughs> <laughs> We're both really That's indecisive. Good. So indecisive. <laughs> okay. Which one is the funny one? Three, two, one. Viv. Both of us. We're both funny. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, I didn't do it right on one. You're thinking Left about me it. hanging. Riley's funny. Riley's the funny one. No. Which one would rather be fishing? Three, two, one. Oh wow! Really? You want to be fishing? I enjoy fishing. It's true. I forgot. I forgot. I'm I love so that. Sorry. We're learning new things about each yeah. other. You gotta go fish. You gotta. Go okay, fishing. this. This is the last one. Which one believes in ghosts? Three, two, one. Viv. Ooh. Yeah. That's like the only consensus. <laughs> oh, the, in cook. I'm not cooking. Yeah, Viv is Viv is a good ghost believer. She has like rocks and stuff by her bed. <laughs> Do you recharge your crystals in the moonlight? Oh, I, not I that have not good. Done that. No. That's why there's so many ghosts okay, around. Right. You better recharge them. The full moon, the harvest moon, the red moon, the pink moon. That's right. You really need you're to protect so, your family, you're Viv. So right. Thank you for this reminder. Yeah, this is. Yes. This is rough. Well, listen, we have reached the end of this interview. Imaginary People was one of the best records of 2023. If you haven't listened to it, what are you doing? <laughs> listen to it. Um, I'm excited to see you guys again to hang in real yeah. life. Yuck it up and uh, watch you watch you perform. Uh, yes, I enjoy you both a lot. <laughs> it's so Me good. To, yeah, it's so good to talk to you uh, and, and reunite.
This episode of Basic Folk was produced by C.J. Nungesser. Our music is composed by Alex Stanton. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes there, wherever you get podcasts. You can also search for us on the SiriusXM app, or you can check out our website, basicfolk.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, like maybe your favorite uncle who is an old-time fiddler who you think maybe won't like this Viv and Riley album because it's got a couple of boops and bops and some some dissonant guitars, but it also has some fiddle. You never know because he's like an open-minded guy. He like got you a Grateful Dead tape when you were in the sixth grade and also like Warriors tie-dye t-shirts pretty regularly. He could be into it. You should send it to him. Okay, well, thank you for listening all the way to the end. It's been a real pleasure and we'll talk to you next time. Um, bye. Bye.